I'm speaking today about something that has been on my heart for a number of months. Um, the ministry that we're involved in have been praying with us about this stuff. My wife and I have been praying. I call it the need that we have in our nation for 1,000 prophets. And I'm going to use this time to try to extend an invitation to men and women out there who are willing to um, commit themselves to seeing this nation, the one I'm in, Canada, turn around for the Lord. So this is where we're going today. So please watch over your soul while I'm saying this and make a decision. I want to serve the Lord, so I'm listening hard, okay? Please join us in asking the Lord God to raise up a thousand prophets here in Canada who will walk and minister in the fear of the Lord. And so I put down, what is the Lord looking for in his prophets, to be his prophets? And so there's a number of things. I'll probably think of a few more tomorrow, but I have some things here that um, you need to understand that I believe God's looking for. First of all, the person walking in the fear of the Lord, they will never compromise the Word of God to make life easier for themselves. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, but by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul is saying, when I'm preaching, I'm not preaching and changing things because of my fear of the Jews. I'm not changing things to get the church to like me better. I'm not changing things so that the sinners won't be, will be turned off. I'm, not, I'm just pray, straight out preaching the Word of God. No compromise. Setting forth the truth plainly, he said. That's the Word of God. He's not preaching and saying, well, I know this passage says one thing, but that's really not what Paul was thinking. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that's really not what Moses was thinking or Jesus. He doesn't. He just preaches that the way it is. And we need to be the same way. If you're going to be effective in the kingdom of God, as a prophet, you need to make sure what you say is clean from the Word of God and clean from His Holy Spirit if you have a prophecy. But that prophecy must agree with the Word of God. It cannot violate it. There's another verse in Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what the psalmist said. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. Let me paraphrase that. When I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, I'm going to speak the truth. Righteousness means the truth. I do not seal my lips as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. In other words, the things that God wants, he's plain about them. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. What a powerful man of God. No wonder the Lord used him so powerfully 
in order to turn the nation of Israel into a nation that loved the Lord and pleased the Lord. At least it lasted until he himself got a bit sloppy with his life. And that's what turned Israel around to start going the wrong way. But righteousness means I will treat right the word of God. The second reason God is looking for people to be prophets of fear of the Lord, they will consistently preach what John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples preached. Even the apostle Paul. They preached repentance, and they preached that we should humble ourselves by an open public confession of the sins that we're repenting of. Matthew 4, 17, this is one of many times. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the, the first word recorded of any of his sermons is the word repent. Now, the word repent and repentance appears in the New International Version from 1984. That's my edition. It appears 47 times. That should be enough for us to pay attention to. We need to repent of sin. We need to confess it. So let's look at the, the, the need to confess our sins in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, why is confessing our sins so important? Well, in Acts 19, they seem to understand. They were caught by surprise by seven sons of Sceba that get beat up by one man. They're trying to get deliverance. And they were concerned, and they came together, and they brought all their occult books and all that stuff. But it says in verse 8, many of those who believed now came and openly, notice the word openly, confessed their evil deeds. What is there about confession in public? The key is in the fact that God wants us to humble ourselves. He doesn't want to have to humble us. He wants us to humble ourselves. He says that. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And so if I were to come to the people that I know, I'm not talking about standing on a street corner or, or to a public meeting. I'm talking about people that I, I respect, people that I want them to love me and to care for me as I love them and care for them. And I have to get over the fear of them rejecting me and openly confess my sin to them. That's humbling. I, don't, I shouldn't have to explain that. It's very humbling to do that with people that you know. And in that humility, the Old Testament says, James quotes it, Peter quotes it, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride is when I'm closed up. I don't want you to see me the way I am. I just want to put on a spiritual front so you'll really be impressed. I don't want you to see my heart. But confession humbles us because it says, Lord, I open my heart. I'm telling these people what I've done. I confess the sin, and that's humbling. God said, that's where my grace is. This person, God says, I'm opposed to that person. 
this person, God says, that's where my grace is. What is God looking for in a man who walks in the fear of the Lord? Here's the third one I have. They will be bold. They will be courageous. They will be witnesses declaring that the blood of Jesus can not only forgive us for our sins, but can change our lives from what we used to be to what he wants us to be. The president of this television station that I'm speaking from told me that in the country where he was, he was not a Christian, but he heard some missionaries up on a platform speaking out in public and they weren't, they weren't expounding what their denomination believes or why you should go with them. And not, They weren't doing any of that stuff. They simply said, Jesus can change your life. And he said, that's what I needed, and that's what I wanted. And today he's serving the Lord. What does Paul say to the Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel because, listen, it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. I would like to just paraphrase that quote. The gospel is the power of God to change your life and to change those you're praying for and witnessing to. The gospel is the power of God to change personal lives. It changes families. It changes communities. It changes nations. The gospel has that power, but we have to speak it out to people in prayer, but then to people what God tells us to do in order to see that happen. It means to be saved from something. The word salvation, I'm saved from something. And that was my old way of life. I'm glad God saved me from my old way of life. Yes, I went to church. Yes, we, we were taught Sunday school. Yes, we were youth sponsors, my wife and I. But I didn't like my life. I wasn't excited about the Lord. And, and in the business I was working in with other people, I often just went with them where they did and what they did. We didn't do terrible things, but it was just not right. Going with them was not wrong. Entering into their style of humor, into their stories, that's what became wrong. And God changed my life. And in that same company, within the year, every one of the men that worked under my leadership, they may have joked about it when they're all together, Howard's changed, so on. But when I was with them personally, every one of them, asked me what had happened, and I got to share the gospel with them. The gospel is the power of God to change people's lives. And listen, if you're going to be a prophet and you're going to see people turned around, their hearts and their minds opened up, you're going to have to believe that the gospel is the power that will do it. Not you. It's the gospel that will do it. That's why we need not to compromise it, not to change it. You see, if I change what the Bible says, it isn't the Word of God anymore. It's my Word. And you see, Jesus promised us, and we see it 
recorded in the book of Acts that actually happened. Jesus said, if you speak my word, I'll confirm that word with signs and wonders. And it proved it in the, in the book of Acts and later in Paul's writing. The word was confirmed because they stuck to the word of God. But you see, if I change it to suit somebody, change it so I won't get rejected, change it so it'll be more appealing. It's my word. Jesus never said he'd confirm my word. He said we'd confirm his word. It's probably why we see so many hundreds, maybe even thousands, evangelical churches today with no power because they've changed the word of God to fit their denomination or to fit the type of people they're ministering to so they don't offend them. Someday you've got to look up in your concordance and count the number of times that Jesus offended people because he was speaking the truth. And you see, even the disciples said, Jesus, you're offending the Pharisees by what you said. Every time Jesus offended somebody with the truth, he never apologized. He wasn't doing it to offend. He was doing it to speak the truth and never compromise what the Holy Spirit was telling him to say. If they were offended, it's because the demon that was there with them or in them don't, doesn't like the truth. And so we're offended. That means, oh, don't ever say that again. And many, many leaders fall into that. Another person walking in the fear of the Lord that the Lord is looking for, they will not be afraid to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not be afraid. In Revelation 12, verse 10, for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now, right now, we know that an angel threw Satan out. God didn't even bother getting off the throne. An angel had more power than Satan and threw him down. And that's why in verse 11 it says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now that verse 11, there's three things there but I have so often heard preachers and teachers only mention two. The first one, the overcame of the blood of the Lamb, yes, that's right. And the word of the testimony, yes, that's right. But why don't these people also preach that did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death? It's because it isn't popular now. In our day and age, just tell somebody, if you're going to serve the Lord, if you're going to be effective in his kingdom, you must be willing to die for him if necessary. But believe me, folks, I wouldn't have it any other way because I know the joy that comes from obedience and it's obedience that puts you into the presence of the Lord. The, the Bible says, in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. It's obedience that gets us there. It's not a hot shot convention somewhere or some preacher that lays hands on you and knocks you down. It's because you're in obedience. That's where the joy is because you're in the presence of the Lord. 
the person walking in the fear of the Lord, the fifth point that I have, he will, in obedience to the command of Jesus, do what he said we were to do. And this is Matthew 28. I, I mentioned this at the beginning. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This scripture that so many people in our churches talk about, oh, the Great Commission, glory to God, but yet most of us violate it. We're not going out. If we do go out and lead somebody to the Lord, very seldom that I'm aware of are they ever discipled, and even less are they baptized. And yet that's what Jesus says. You go out, you make disciples, you baptize them, you disciple them, Teach them about the Holy Spirit. Those are the elementary teachings. The writer of the Hebrew says in chapter 6. The elementary teachings. I was asked a number of years ago to come and do a weekend to help the church prepare for revival in that church. And I knew there was a group of people that had been diligently praying for revival for some months, many months. I'd been there many times before. They knew me quite well, and it was a joy to do it. And I preached on what the Lord is looking for in a church so he can trust it with revival. We got through it all right, but after I was finished, I asked the pastor, if the Lord sends a bunch of new Christians do you have a discipleship program in place that you can disciple them? He said, no. You know, to me it's like, if my wife and I were going to adopt a child, and that adoption was close, and, and um, we are visited two days before by the lady who's looking after it, and she says, um, I would like to see the nursery. I'd like to see what you have set up to look after that child. And if we said to that lady, oh, we haven't done anything. You know, they'll, they'll make out on their own. They bring the baby and we'll put them there in the corner in the crib. And, and, and we'll trust God that after a few years that child will grow up and be the person it's supposed to be. You can count on the fact that that lady is going to change her mind and we will not get that baby. But yet that's the way we treat new converts, if we have one. And that's why God isn't giving us money because we don't know how to look after them. We're not doing simply what Jesus said. I want you to make disciples. How do you do that? You teach them, you baptize them, you present the Holy Spirit to them so they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You take them through a time where they understand what curses and deliverance is. You do the discipling that needs to be done. 
in order to see a person progress and grow because they don't have to be fighting all this stuff all the time, not knowing what's going on. It's the biggest disappointment I have in the church. I have yet to find any church that has an active discipleship program. I have yet to find it. They just don't do it. And yet it should be there. We're commanded to do it. <clears throat> a person walking in the fear of the Lord is what God's looking for. They will be people of faith, totally depending on the Lord for their day-by-day -day needs. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not flippant when I say this. Because when we started the ministry, Jacobsville Ministry is called in 1973. It got so busy a year and a half later, I had to resign from the job that I'd held for nine years. And it was a job I was being paid more than I ever thought I'd be paid. I had a company car, a good expense account. I could take out customers. There was no limits on how I could bless them. I didn't punch a clock. I was in management, lower level of management. And the Lord was speaking to my wife and I about giving that up because the ministry had started a year and a half earlier was really keeping us too busy. We couldn't do both. And we stepped out by faith, lost the car because it was a company car. Didn't have my house paid for. Four boys that were growing up, all in there. I think the oldest was about 12 or 13 at that time. And um, I want you to know that God looked after us. We got our house paid for actually before it was to be matured. We got a car, man in our church offered to sell us a car at a good price and hold and hold the, hold the um, payments. I paid them off in six months. But God looked after us, bought food for us. We were never out of food. But we had to learn some things. God will look after those that trust him. But in trusting him, he will test us. And in that test, we need to learn fast how to stand firm by speaking out the promises of God to look after. But both my wife and I knew for a fact that we had been called. That's important. Don't just assume God's calling you out. You might need to step into the ministry and find out if that's what God's calling you to while you're still at your work, still doing your things that are responsible. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9:18. He said, in, pre in preaching the gospel, I, may, I, I want to offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. The old King James says, I don't want to use the power of preaching it and so therefore I'll offer it free. Now I think that is saying, you can sit yourself. 
But if my focus in preaching the gospel is to get an offering, to get paid, I want to preach at those, that church because they pay good. No. We, I think according to that King James interpretation that we're destroying the power of God because our motive isn't the kingdom growth. It's our own financial growth. You need to go into this. If you're being called, saying, Lord, I am making a decision to totally and completely trust you. Margaret and I had to de de determine that we would, every test, when it came to financial tests, say, yes, our bank account is empty, the, buds, the bills are coming in, but I know God's going to provide for us. I know. And we had to stick to that. And God saw us through it. Yes, he tested us. He tested the children of Israel in the wilderness. He promised to bring them through, and then he tested them. They failed the test. You don't have to fail the test. Paul said, I offer it free of charge because I don't want it to affect the gospel I'm preaching. Number seven, what's God looking for in a prophet that walks in the fear of the Lord? They will not be ashamed to live a holy life in every area of their life. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace and with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You know, this thing of holiness, we have many people have bad images of it because of the hypocrites that have tried to look holy on the outside but live garbage lives. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the holiness inside. What you live outside is your business, but inside, holiness, when it's there, will have a great influence on what you live out. We need to have holiness. We need to prepare ourselves to be in a position for God to call us to be one of those hundred, those 1,000 prophets. And I'm, again, pray with us. Start to pray across this nation of Canada or the nation that you live in. Start asking God for to raise up prophets that would meet some of these standards. Maybe there's more standards that God wants to show you. But call God. Say, Lord, I'm calling on you to prepare people, to raise them up so that they can speak across this land to begin to speak the word of the Lord. Are you willing to lay down your personal ambitions, your dreams, your vision, and commit yourself totally to the Lord for his work? If you're willing to lay down your life for his name and his kingdom, God can use you. It means you are dead to what you want and are only concerned about what he wants. There will be testings and trials, but that is how he prepares us to be overcomers and victorious. Total submission to him, that is where your joy is complete. I know that. I've proved it. I know it. I'm not boasting. It's the grace of God, but I know it. I'm recommending to you. On the screen, you see the picture of a book and a scripture. The book is to be read to help us understand what God did years ago to turn a nation around and bring it back to himself. 
Buy this book and read it with an open heart. Ask God to show you his calling from this book. But it's what happened 2,000 years ago to the Roman Empire. And then there's another book. This book is to help you understand what God is doing today. Read it with an open heart. You're, you're asking God to impress on you his calling. It's the first book is Christianizing the Roman Empire. The author is Ramsey McMullen. It's printed in Yale University Press. You'll find it on, our, on Amazon. Mega Shift is by James Roots. You'll also find it on Amazon. Mega Shift, it's simply called. These books, when you read them, what happened 2,000 years ago, what's happening today, you ask God to show you if you're to be part of that ministry. They're available on the internet, whatever. You can contact us, of course, through jacobswellministries.ca. My name is Howard Ellis. I want to help you in any way that I can. May God bless you, Lord. I ask you to help these people in the name of Jesus. Amen. please visit our website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.